Before we get started, I just want to make a reminder to everybody that the information uh, discussed today is not to be interpreted or construed as investment advice. Everyone's financial situation, goals, and objectives are different. Please consult investment advice. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to the Looney Hour, episode 40. As always, joined by the three amigos, we got Keith Dicker of Ice Cap Asset Management, and we got Rich Diaz, Tom Brady of Macro with Acorn Macro Consulting. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. What's uh, what's going on, Rich? Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, crude oil t-shirt on today. Yes. If you guys want to support me at Acorn Macro Consulting on the website, I sell very cool t-shirts. This one's crude oil is super useful. Um, which it is. And, and uh, we'll talk a little bit why that's important for Italy and, and the rest of the Europe later. But no, everything's fine. I've got to pay the piper today, which I'm a little bit nervous about. I took my insulin shot before I came to work today. So um, a couple Twinkies. Uh, I guess on I'm the ready to go. Here. I'm not going to eat them both at the same time. So I think I'll get sick, but I'm going mean, to, I guess we just start, right? Here we go. There's my Twinkie. This one's chocolate this time. Ooh. So you make, and there you go. That sounds dangerous. Um, Steve, I think you should explain why we're eating Twinkies today. Maybe somebody Keith, Keith already ate his box. Uh, yeah, we obviously had the the Bank of Canada update. Um, you know, last was the last episode. We we had a, a, a wager, so it was Keith and I. We had seventy five basis points as the prediction, and Rich had the fifty. So Rich, Rich is going to down two Twinkies here because he missed it by fifty beeps. And uh, yeah, Keith and I are, are along for the ride here as well. So we'll be devouring those throughout the show. Um, but yeah, obviously a, a pretty big shock here from the Bank of Canada. You know, I think, you know, markets were pricing in 75 basis points. I don't think it was very high odds, 100 basis points. Um, and so it was definitely a bit of a surprise. You know, the largest single rate hike from the BOC since 1998. Uh, I think what's really the most surprising thing is like, you know, I know everyone kind of like, oh, you know, you, you guys were not calling for a whole lot of rate increases, but like, I don't know, like show me like a person that had the Bank of Canada going from zero to neutral in four months. Like they went from basically what, 0.25 to two and a half in four months. I think that's Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that not the fastest pace of increase? It means the fastest pace to get to neutral, right? And and for those that are listening that maybe aren't sure, like neutral is what the Bank of Canada basically determines as the rate which is not stimulative and it's not uh, tightening. Um, it's it's their neutral rate. So that's that's kind of the rate where they typically want to be. Um, so Keith, I don't know if you have any initial commentary on, on sort of your views from a financial market perspective of, of the, the move from the BOC here. Yeah, that, that was it, like, it was absolutely shocking yesterday. Uh, it hasn't happened before that they have, well, you know, back in 98, they did it, but that was for a different reason. Like that, that was done you know, to protect the currency, you know, that that's basically what it's done. You know, what's happening today, they're doing it to try to, you know, cause inflation to come down. We can debate whether, 
raising rates would do that directly or not. Uh, we will come back to that. But, uh, you know, very quickly, though, when I saw 100 basis points on my screen yesterday, uh, my, I went, holy smokes, that's a lot. And I think if you had everyone across the industry yesterday who was following the Bank of Canada, uh, everyone would have been like, holy smokes. Like, nobody was expecting it. Um, and it's my initial thought as soon as I saw it, I said, hey, you know, I think they're just pulling pulling forward one of their quarter point moves. And I, I think that was really what was communicated during the presser afterwards. But as of right now, um, you know, the market is, is pricing in another 75 basis points increase for the next meeting, which is September the 7th. So we, we get August off. So now we're going to have almost eight weeks probably coming up here with no action from the Bank of Canada. They deserve, they, they've, been, they've been working hard, guys. So they get, <laughs> they get, you know, August off, go up to Muskoga, I guess, maybe fly out to Kitsilano and hang out with, you know, everyone's favorite, you know, realtor out, out that way. But- Else uh, if Macklem a discounted house. Yeah. But one thing I think may happen, I think, if we go into September with, with no increase in, in stress around the world or that that's affecting Canada, they will continue with more rate hikes. If stress does increase to the point where it's getting really shaky out there, I, I think they're going to, that could be the last month where they're a hike or October will be the last month when they're hike. So like I'm, I'm now going to that camp, like they're almost done and it's just going to take, you know, something to, to trigger them to say, Okay, we're done, uh, and I'm sure they're getting a lot of phone calls today. I mean, we we've been hearing, you know, a lot of anecdotal stories where people were just shocked yesterday, like the impact it's it's going to have on on people's uh, loans, with variable rate loans and stuff like that. But but again, just for everyone to understand, that was a, a, a unbelievable rate increase yesterday nobody was expecting it if anyone says oh yeah they're expecting 100 basis points it, it just means they they're not informed they're, they're not informed with what the market is pricing in where guidance has been because markets don't work that way you know they, they don't work with guessing but that, that's my first uh, thought for you steve and yeah Rich. i mean i think it's kind of important to highlight it just like i feel just like how all over the place and perhaps how wrong these guys have been over the last several years um, obviously getting inflationary, not wrong, but like disgracefully, disgracing, disgracefully wrong. Um, but I mean, like, was it, was it not the, was it the move in January where like, I can't remember if it was January or February where it was the move was already priced in and they didn't raise rates. Yep. And like, then, and, and so it was the first Twinkie bet. It was the first, it was my yeah, Twinkie. So he, I had to eat the Twinkie for that one. Yeah, these guys have just been kind of all over the place uh, from the get-go. And and definitely, Keith, to your point, if you do look at the Bank of Canada's verbiage uh, after that rate hike, there definitely there was a lot of verbiage about pulling forward uh, their their moves and their rate hikes. So, I mean, that's something that for our listeners to kind of take in that, you know, uh, a lot of this, I think, is just pulling forward um, some of those hikes and, and, you know, watching an interview couple of weeks ago with uh, Stephen Polos. Um, it was kind of off the record. He was chatting about that too, is that they had to get very aggressive and get it in right away. So I, I don't know, Rich, if you have any additional commentary as well from, from your side. Um, no, not, not too much more. One, just, I think we should, we owe uh, Scotiabank an apology. I think we made fun of them quite a bit for their eight rate hikes. So um, I think, you know, um, we I'll, take I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I'll, 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 I'll leave that I'm one. I'm happy to be wrong. 
I'm guilty of it too. Um, you know, I, I mock them and, and it turns out they're probably gonna be closer to the right than we were. I think this is a function of um, lost credibility and why a central bank must be not only independent, but to be perceived as independent. We've discussed that several months ago. And why I bring that up is because, you know, the central bank was derelict in its duty in two ways. One, it not only got the inflation call spectacularly wrong, but also the length of the inflation. So the transitory, non-transitory debate, I think was just, I think it was just an out and out lie, but you know, that's a different conversation for a different day. Where they lost credibility was basically absorbing 90% of the federal government bond issuance in order to keep interest rates low. That was, to my view, a quantitative easing mistake that I think we'll be paying for a long time. And then, so when they didn't raise rates, you know, last year, which I think a lot of people are saying, you know, th there was some question, the, the, the perception of their independence started to sort of fade away. And I think that that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing sort of why it's so important that central banks sort of fight their urge to do the quote unquote right thing and are, that's why they're unelected technocrats. This is why they're not affiliated to parties. So that when things get tough, they can sort of float above the machinations of different political wills and, and what, you know, what your buddy from the Laurentians may or may want to not want to do with interest rates. And, and why I'm, I think it's, in a sense, a good thing that they're raising interest rates quite a bit. Um, you know, it's also just a function, let's remember, of, of them trying to regain that sort of credibility as this independent technocratic institution. And I think that that's why it's sort of a fact, we live in interesting times. And that's sort of, for me, that that was the real takeaway from that. And then the other thing that I think is important to remember is that interest rates are still deeply, deeply negative, which is amazing, right? You, you mentioned how it's the fastest rate hike cycle in X amount of months, depending on what you use as your inflation measure. Let's just use sort of the, the core inflation based, you know, one of their you know, preferred cord measures, their, their preferred cord measures, you know, 4%. And so that means interest rates are still negative in real terms, which is, I mean, let's be honest, inflation, like even at CPI, let's just say eight is sure. Even maybe a, little, a bit on the light side. So you got inflation at eight and you've got the, the rate at, what are we at now? Two and a half. Yeah. So, I was just trying to be conservative and, and choosing sort of the lower inflation rate just again trying to be generous i guess in my analysis but but that the point remains that inflation uh, sorry interest rates are still negative which is it is quite fascinating that after all of this all the imagine and all the damage that's that's been done as well in the markets and keith will obviously touch on that later but you know markets are down 30 percent house prices are starting to weaken which we'll get into and all that and interest rates are still historically quite negative in real terms, which I think is kind of an interesting wrinkle to this whole story. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, just, I'm always kind of, I always like to go back and circle back. I mean, I think everybody's ultimately responsible for their own financial decisions, getting back on Scotia's comment, you know, kudos to them. Um, I think that one thing I will say, we've talked about on the show before is that they're, they're also calling for, uh, you know, just a moderation in housing sales, and, and no, no decline in, in national house prices. And again, you know, I mean, I don't know if you call a 20 year low in Canada's largest uh, metropolitan city, a, a moderation, but um, you know, that was kind of always to, to my point, right. As I just feel like central banks, given the level of, 
you know, aid that they've been providing markets over the last 10, 15 years, they're basically operating a switch, right? It's, it's markets on markets off. And, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing now playing out is in the, is in the, uh, you know, the Canadian housing market. I think the, the lights are turned off. And so we'll, we'll find out the repercussions of that, I think over the next 12 months. But I think one thing I'd like to point out to which, which is the importance here. So, We've talked about this before. We'll kind of touch on the, the Canadian mortgage side, and then we'll shift gears, obviously, to our to our other macro viewpoint. But obviously, this is a Canadian show, so I want to touch on this because this is extremely important. I think for for the vast majority of Canadians. So, you've got your fixed rate mortgage and your variable rate mortgage. Um, with the Bank of Canada raising rates 100 basis points yesterday, instantly your variable rate mortgages were repriced by 100 basis points, so a full one percent higher. So before the announcement, your typical variable rate mortgage, give or take on a five-year, was give or, it was about 3.2%. And so now you automatically go to 4.2%. And so what happens then is that you had a huge chunk of home buyers in the market over the last year, basically. Actually, over 55% of new originations have been going variable. Because basically, there's been this historically widespread where variable rate mortgages have been uh, more than 150 basis points cheaper than your fixed rate. So everyone's like, well, why would I go with fixed? Variables, 150, 200 basis points cheaper. Let's go with the variable rate. And then because that mortgage stress test, you know, when your fixed, when your fixed mortgage rate went to 5%, it means you had to get stress tested at 2% above that rate. So 7%, which means you lost all this borrowing capacity. So people were opting to stick with that 32 variable in, in recent months in particular. And so they're only being stress tested at the minimum qualifying rate, which is 5.25%. And so they're, they weren't really losing any purchasing power. Yeah, you had to pay a higher interest rate, but you weren't really losing any purchasing power. Well, now that your variable is 4.2, it means you get stress tested at 6.2, which means you just lost basically 10% of borrowing capacity overnight. So the basically anyone that was still active in the market, we saw a lot of people going to variable because everyone's like, well, I don't want to lock in a fixed at 5.2%. And so now that's going to hit home buyer demand even further. So again, now if the Bank of Canada continues to raise rates, like the, everyone's predicting, right? I mean, they're calling, for, they're calling for more hikes in September. They're calling for an overnight rate to go from two and a half today to three and a half by the end of the year. So if we get to three and a half percent, um. I think it was 3.75 actually is now what, the, what they're projecting. So that'll be 350 basis points of rate hikes in one single year. The typical variable rate mortgage in Canada is what's called a fixed payment mortgage. So yes, you have a floating variable, but your payment always stays the same. And what happens is when the rates go up again, you pay less towards principal and more towards the interest. But at some point you become basically negative amortizing. You're not paying enough principal down. And so the basically what happens is they have a trigger rate. That trigger rate is typically 350 basis points higher than your original contract rate. So if we get 350 basis point increase this year, you're going to have a lot of variable rate mortgages that get triggered. So they will basically what happens when I say trigger, it means the bank comes, knocks on your door and says, hey, uh, you need to increase your monthly payments. You're not paying enough of your principal down. And so depending on your mortgage size, that could be a couple hundred bucks. I, I don't really necessarily know the math on the top of my head here. 
but I think that's a very, very important story. And so, so, so just, sorry. So just for us layman's here. So basically the amount of interest rate hikes has been such that it is very, very, it's very, very easy to see a big, like a chunk of Canadian mortgage, um, like mortgage um, borrowers getting triggered, as you say, and having their total mortgage payment move or ratchet up a sizable chunk. Yeah, correct. Um, there's, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, so of the variable of all the variable mortgages that are, that are outstanding by Canadians, about 80% of them are what's called fixed mortgage payments. So they're variables with fixed payment structures. Um, so I don't know the percentage of, off the top of my head of like how many Canadians have fixed versus variable. I think variable is definitely the minority share. I think it's maybe 35% as far as I'm, I'm guessing here. Um, but of those 35%, let's say 80% of them have fixed payment structures. So it's just another thing to kind of keep in mind as we move forward here that like if that actually triggers and if we fully do get those 350 basis points this year, I think that's going to just be less disposable income for Canadians to spend. I think it just puts more strain on a highly levered uh, private sector. So I think that, uh, I mean, my, my view ultimately is I still don't think the Bank of Canada is going to get 350 basis points in this year. Um, but that's something to sort of keep in mind. Uh, thanks for sharing that. And um, I do know that... I don't think we're allowed to say names of specific banks, but one of the banks, a lot of their variable rate mortgages are not fixed pay. I think they are, what would you call that? A floating pay, a floating, right? Yeah, floating, floating variable. Yeah. So one of the guys I know, that's, that's where his mortgage is. And um, so about a year ago, he entered the market. And uh, so his payment keeps, obviously his payment is going up all the time now. It is a pretty significant increase in payment. So it's one thing, for you as a uh, as a borrower, if you know you're paying, uh, what's what's an average mortgage payment for some people? Two thousand bucks a month, a thousand. Gosh, I just feel like it so depends on like when you purchase. I mean, people that bought like fifteen years ago, right? I mean, you probably got a really small mortgage, but mm -hmm. uh, I mean, today, today, you know, typical home price in Vancouver is north of a million bucks. So, I mean. Yeah, I know. I know some. Mortgage. I know some families in Toronto. Like they're probably paying uh, like three to four thousand a month, right? That's what they're. Okay, they're so paying. I would say like anyone, yeah. any any young family that lives in Vancouver, or Toronto, that's like you know, late thirties, early forties. It's got like a couple young kids, and they probably got like a townhouse or a single family home. Like I, I can almost guarantee that most of those people have mortgages of a million dollars or more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think you're seeing a, you know, a pretty significant um, increase in, in, in mortgage, you know, the cash flow coming out of people. And so I, I want to comment on, on two things, um, maybe three things, and I'm getting hungry as well. So I'm going to squeeze that in afterwards. Hey, I'm boomer. I, I like a little, you know, something sweet in the afternoon to keep me awake. Um, first of all, one thing that we, we've been we've introduced for a while now and it was seemed, you know, a bit crazy at first. And um, I think now it's actually becoming more, more real. Um, I continue to believe that not only are we headed for recession around the world, and it could be a dramatic one in specific economies, the central banks are trying to specifically drive it because that's the only way they can try to get 
inflation data to come down. The central banks, they cannot, you know, produce more oil or more gasoline, you know, increase the yield on on crops or anything. All they can do is they try to decrease aggregate demand. And the way you do that is with the recession. And you know what? Like, you know, uh, if people get, you know, uh, their incomes go down or they lose jobs, you know, some folks get hurt. You know, but that's what one of the big boys said a few years ago. I, I do think that's where we're headed. Um, we also introduced the idea a few shows ago to start watch, start to watch what the banks are doing and, and saying. So for us um, here at, at our firm, this morning was a, was a pretty big announcement came up from JP Morgan. Now, obviously, they're a big okay. global bank. They're Americans and all that. But they, um, they, they miss on earnings. That's not a big deal because earnings numbers by banks can be manipulated to whatever number they want it to be. But what they did do was two things. One, they uh, dramatically increased their provisioning for bad loans. So which means either they didn't have enough set aside to start with, or their expectation for the economy to be slowing significantly going forward is a lot more than they thought last quarter. Um, also recall that last quarter, Jamie Dimon, he's the CEO over at JP Morgan, um, you know, I th- he, he had an interview, uh, and what was the words he, he described? We have a, a hurricane coming, an economic hurricane, or do you remember that? Yeah, guys? Remember yeah, the, yeah I remember concept? that. And at the time, people were saying, oh, you know, uh, you know, you only like these guys when they say something that you agree with. If they say something you disagree with, you know, you know, they're an idiot. <laughs> anyway, uh, he's gone from being an idiot to, you know, more of a realist. What I suspect will happen here in Canada now, starting in August, when our big banks are coming out with earnings, I think you're going to see loan provisioning go up. Oh, the other thing JP Morgan did, uh, they stopped their stock buybacks, which is pretty significant. So, uh, you know, in, in, in the capital markets world, instead of, inc- instead of increasing dividend payments, stuff like that, you know, from a tax perspective, you reduce the shares outstanding and everything. So for them to stop share buybacks and increase loan provisioning, that's, that's like a wow moment. And this is it. That's in the strongest growing economy in, in the world right now. It's the core, it's the center of the earth. And um, so it, again, reaching out beyond the, beyond the core to the next level where we are here in Canada, I suspect the Canadian banks will be increasing their loan provisioning next quarter and specifically RBC. You know, I can say their name because during their last earnings release, which is public knowledge, is, is data uh, that's available for everyone. They, they actually took a negative charge on their loan provisioning. So which means they, they clawed back, you know, from their uh, rainy day fund, so to speak. Uh, I do not suspect any Canadian bank is they're at the position right now where they're going to other stop buybacks and the very last thing a Canadian bank will ever do will be to cut their dividend. So we're, we're not at that point right now. However, things are winding up pretty tightly outside of Canada that if things do deteriorate, we, we could get that moment here in Canada, which will make it uh, even more interesting, which then will get reflected more with interest rates, credit spreads, as well as the Canadian dollar which we know is not doing well. Remind for everyone, we record this on, on Thursdays and we release on Fridays. But uh, here on Thursday, there's, there's a lot of red on this on the screen today, specifically in, in the currency market. I need to Can eat I... something while you guys... Uh... Yeah, Rich. Well, I just want to ask a question. Rich, so, I mean, okay, okay, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Sorry, this is a really quick question. It's just for sort of both of you guys, actually. But so, I mean, I've come around to the view that the central banks are trying to hurt aggregate demand. I was probably late to that party. 
Um, but the my question is, do you think in Canada they're trying to crash the housing bubble? Just like, I mean, do you think that that's, I mean, it's it's related, it's different and yet related. <laughs> Keep this for a, a, a screenshot. If anyone yeah, it's, it's a good screenshot. Video. Should we do that? Like, like, this is everything. We got the Looney Hour mug. We got Mickey, <laughs> and then we got like Boomer here in the middle. This is oh, an awesome day, screen. guys. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Hey. All right, forgive me. I answered for a question, but... Um, so let me re-ask my question just because we got distracted by the boomer eating a Twinkie. But the question is, so, I mean, you know, Keith laid the case out for affecting demand as the only way to really bring down inflation. And, and I was just wondering, do you think that the Bank of Canada has its eyes um, on the housing bubble when it raises interest rates um, by 1% when it's committed to more? Because, um, you know, I'm of the view that, you know, they're not going to be able to tackle inflation that way, but that's a conversation maybe for later on. But so what do you think, Steve? I mean, do you do you think they're gonna do you think that they're going there that that the knives are out that they're just trying to knock it down? Yeah, I actually love this question because I I like it's like thing is like I mean, you know, when you when you post content like publicly, it's all out there. Like I remember talking about it on Twitter, you know, I think oh, about a year ago, maybe, maybe a little like maybe even longer, but it was like I think it was late spring, early summer when the housing market was just going bananas and the Bank of Canada was like, no, we're keeping rates at zero. Inflation's transitory. Housing is just pent up demand. I was like, these guys have to be utterly blind. Like this is not pent up demand. Like this thing is completely out of control and they just kept pumping and ignoring it. And I was like, I actually thought that they were doing something similar to maybe like Japan, which was like basically trying to engineer like, a bubble. So there's a lot of like, one of my favorite books was Princes of the Yen by Richard Werner. Uh, he was actually the, the, the economist who coined the phrase quantitative easing. Uh, so he's, yeah, <laughs> he's also put together basically, um, yeah, he basically wrote the book on, on the Japanese bubble. And, and his view was that policymakers were basically engineering and intentionally basically created a housing bubble. Um, they basically wanted a change in government and government policy. And so they specifically engineered a bubble that burst and ultimately has never come back, but 25, 30 years later. Uh, so that was my initial view. I was like, there's no way these guys can be that stupid. And so I don't know, like, are we going down at the same path? We're like, okay, they built this thing up to these insane levels and now they're hiking rates, you know? Um, you know, they went from, Hey, we're not raising rates till the end of 2023. Everybody go borrow your brains out. We will hold rates. And they blew this massive housing bubble. And then, you know, they've jet, they're going to jack rates 300 plus as basis points by the end of 2022. So I just think it's the ultimate rug pull. I don't know if I want to say it's malintent, but something is a little bit fishy. And, and so I don't know. I don't know. Is it, is it, I think societally, I think everyone knows our house prices are, are out of control. Maybe there's like this conspiracy of like the great reset. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I think that's, I, I don't know if they're that smart to be honest, but I also am skeptical that they can be this stupid either. Keith? So, uh, I, I just think it's collateral damage. I mean, so when, when they're sitting there, they're trying to figure out what policy should be, uh, you know, absolutely the housing market is going to come up. Bank loan portfolios is coming up. They're getting feedback from the banks every single day. Um, and then from other, the big infrastructure players and, and everything. And then they're chatting with the Americans and the Europeans and the Japanese and, and everyone else. 
Um, I, I just, you know, we, we've said this before. I think we really need to reset for everyone where we are right now in, in, in the world sort of economic theory. It, it's at the end of the 75-year cycle. So Keynesian economics, it, it's over. It, it's done with. Uh, they're, they're, by they, I mean the central banks as well as fiscal policymakers. They're, they're desperately trying to not have it end. They're trying to extend it. They've been trying to do that now for 15 plus years and it has not worked whatsoever. And at the same time, well, everyone has been now synchronized with, you know, weakening economies, extreme fiscal positions, extreme monetary, extreme inflation, ex extreme everything in, in the world. Uh, you know, that that's why we're getting pushed around here. So, uh, no, I, I don't think they're saying, yeah, we need to crush the housing market and get everyone what was the, it was with the uh the, the now steve's having a twinkie which is great make a noise so we can see on the screen <laughs> i don't think you want to hear that um but was it the 19 was it a is it a pepsi commercial it was about the 1984 george orwell book remember the guy had the hammer and or i think the lady and she ran in and crushed the big gong with it you guys don't I wasn't yeah, even. No, I've read the book. I've read all, almost all. This of was George TV, books. television. <laughs> you know, not not Netflix and things. Black like and that. white TV. You know, I, I know. Again, I, I don't think. Um, I, I do think we are going to have something break and go like that. But I, I think there's a lot other movements happening that will. You know, it'll just make financial markets. Um, you know, it's collateral damage and, and that's the housing market. Okay. So that, that doesn't mean that they don't care about it and stuff like that, because obviously they do. But um, I, my, my view is that, you know, the Americans, like they're up now for 75 basis points in for their next meeting, which I think is, uh, ne is it next? When are they up? When are the Americans up? Oh, you I was me. listening to Waller's speech this morning, by the way, uh, Fed, one of the Fed guys there. Um, so he would, he basically, I literally caught like a couple of minutes of it, but it was like, he basically just said, Hey, listen, like I'm voting for 75 basis points. We don't need to do more. Um, so I think that is do well, but the, he, yeah, he, he also met, he also mentioned front loading as well. So they're the 27th. So they're two yeah. weeks coming up. Um, you know, they're expected to do, you know, 75 and now you're starting to hear, I was chatting with a guy this morning who's, who's pretty uh connected in, in our world and uh he said hey keith like there's whispers of 100 coming up uh i'm also hearing narratives that you know the americans you know, led by yellen on, on the treasury side uh they want the dollar just to scream higher it, it's their incentive to uh these are the words that were shared to me you know that they they have an incentive to crush some specific uh economies and, and systems out there so you can take that for what you think who and, and where they might be and uh so it, it's our view that you know we're we're continuing Can you unpack that a bit further come on don't don't tease us yeah um so it, again like today everything's been wound so tight together that now you have geopolitics overlaid on top of financial call it financial politics if you want but like one of the biggest weapons in the world today it's you know, it, 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 you know, it's the U.S. dollar. So, I mean, if you move outside the whole kinetic war space, which is, you know, they have what they have, uh, people are now starting to appreciate it and understand within the U.S. that just by tightening the U.S. dollar even more, uh, 
that gives them the opportunity to really, uh, you know, tie the screws on, on, you know, your, your adversary. Uh, and the Americans have two big ones right now. And um, the biggest one, it, it is China. That, that's what they were more worried about right now, despite all the other news that we see. And, um, you know, there. so what, what's happening in China, I saw a pretty good uh, research note, actually by, I see by your new good friend, Michael Nicoletos. I know you, you interviewed yeah. Michael there a few days ago. Smart but, guy. Uh, yeah, really, really nice guy as well. And uh, so Michael just just sent me some 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 of his views on what's happening over in China. And uh, what he was showing was that and demonstrating is that the the Chinese property market is just simply dwarfs of what the Americans had back before it it crashed back in 08 or nine. It dwarfed what was happening in Iceland and Ireland and, and all these things. Um, and, and they have this, what you call a, uh, you know, it, it's a closed capital account. So you can't get money in or out without someone opening the gate for you with, with, with the buzzer and all that stuff. Uh, and, and so the meantime, I think you people may have already seen that over the last week, uh, there's now quite a few lads over there in China are unable to withdraw their money out of their banks. So there's a lot of protest happening on, on that side. But with the Americans raising rates, another 75 base points in a couple of weeks, and if they do it again, then in September, that's when they're lined up with the Canadians again, um, there, there's a real opportunity for things to go off the rails, not only in China, but in the whole emerging market world. So remember, Rich, remember the Silence so what, of the Lambs uh, story, which you still you still need to watch it, by the way, to figure right, it out. I have watched just, it. Jay, just to reiterate Michael's comments here, just so you guys are kept in the loop here. Um, so in the past year in China, 28 of the top 100 developers, not small developers, but 28 of the top 100 developers have defaulted or asked their debt holders for extensions. They account for about 20% of China's total property sales. And in Q1, property sales fell 72% from a year ago, further er eroding uh, their cash flows. So basically, they're not able to basically, a lot of them aren't being able to finish construction um, of, of their towers that have, they've basically sold to a lot of these um, Chinese citizens. And, and the citizens are now kind of in revolt and, and refusing to also pay um, um, you know, their, their payments. Cause I guess in China, they, they, they make payments, even though it's not constructed. I just wanted to just add a little bit of context to what I think maybe some of our listeners may or may not know that China pegs their currency, the renminbi to the U S dollar. And we've, we've mentioned my favorite pickup line before the impossible Trinity, and it relates to that. So, I mean, what the U S is doing by raising rates and letting the dollar rise Ultimately, to me, where the release valve, and there is always a release valve in, in financial markets, um, the release valve is that Chinese currency will have to depreciate. Um, they cannot, and I don't know, Keith, if you, maybe you disagree, but they, they cannot keep this, this, this sort of link as tight as it is for a long time. And I mean, it's not clear that they want that because I think China obviously doesn't want inflation. Uh, I mean, that's for political reasons more than economic reasons. But the other thing that's really important to note is that China's trade-weighted currency, obviously a uh, trade-weighted currency is connected very much to the US dollar, but it's just in general, relative to all of its trading partners, is basically at an all-time high. So to me, that's where you're really going to see sort of the pressure. They need to release that pressure. And I think it's going to be in a lower B. Ultimately, they're going to do, they have a lot of power and a lot of sort of dry powder to fight that. 
remember Chinese, Keith and I have disagreed about this before, but I was definitely right. Uh, China has three point two trillion dollars in reserves and you're already starting to see their holdings of treasury starting to, to slink lower and lower and lower and that's as they sort of fight to keep their currency pegged to the u.s but i, I don't think it's going to last very much longer okay, keith do you have a view on that well first of all you're wrong they have three trillion in u.s dollar reserves but u.s dollar valued reserves they have one trillion in treasuries the, the other know, two trillion no, it is. The other, the other two trillion is in assets valued into dollars. So there, there's, there is a, a big difference with it. Um, but the other thing that, that's really affecting uh, China right now is, uh, what's, what's with, is what is happening in Japan. So with, with the yen now basically plummeting to, to new all-time lows, well, all for well, a while. 25 years, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty low. Uh, the Chinese do not like this because that, that takes market share. Uh, it also puts pressure on, on other Southeast Asian markets, similar to the ones that had a lot of trouble back in, in 98. Uh, so with what's happening in, so you got, you got the Japanese currency is extremely weak. That's because they can't not, they can't let the bond market go in, in Japan. You got the Americans raising rates at 75, 75 basis points. The Canadians doing a hundred to try to keep up with, with the, uh, the Americans, the Americans are doing now aggressive quantitative tightening as well. Um, China has to import a ton of stuff to eat. They have to import a ton of stuff to burn. Like, again, like they're, they're in a, a real tight spot here coming up and all that has to happen. The Americans, so both the fed and the treasury just have to make a decision to slack off on driving the dollar higher. If they did that, you know, the world will exhale a little bit. You know, the Canadians won't have to raise rates anymore. The we haven't talked about Europe, of course. I love Europe. You know that. Um, you know they. You know they may not be in a as difficult spot. And as a reminder, you know, you know we are Canadian centric, of course. And I know we do talk about what's happening outside of Canada a lot, uh, but that's simply because that that's where the game is, and everything that's happening outside of Canada will ultimately come back inside and affect Canada. So with the Bank of Canada hiking by 100 basis points yesterday, you might think, oh, yeah, it's because inflation is high in Canada and stuff. It's no, it's because it's around the world. You know, the Fed is doing it as well and, and all that. Before we jump over to Europe, did you guys want to talk any more about uh, Twinkies or anything else? Well, there's just one more thing I wanted to add related to the Chinese and um, and the U.S. dollar. And so one of, there was some big news this, out this week. I know we're going to sort of do around the horn news a little later, but I just thought it was important related to your point, Keith, which is so you guys might be familiar with something called the BRICS. Um, it's it's a sort of an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. Um, this is sort of basically been expanded to to make up for to make to mean sort of emerging market countries that sort of are trying to align their interests mostly economically i think as things progress it'll be more politically and militarily but ultimately it was sort of about that um and you'll notice that um so and then in general those two of those countries are sort of commodity exporters and two of those con countries are commodity importers um, importers being India and China and what they wanted. And so the issue really China has is that their the U S is continues U S dollar continues to be the foreign exchange reserve currency of the world. And what, and one way that the Chinese and to a lesser degree, the Indians sort of feel that they can deal with a lot of their 
uh, economic problems and then ultimately political problems is sort of extract themselves from that dollar payment sphere of influence. Remember, dollars are used to settle all lots of financial instruments and lots of financial, but also in, in a, the vast majority of commodity and um, manufacturing and service trades are settled in US dollars. And so one way that these countries feel they can sort of extract themselves from that sphere and then all of the sort of the, the effects and negative side effects and positive side effects from that is to sort of create their own currency block. Um, they had a meeting this week. There will definitely be more of those meetings. Um, you know, a lot of people always talk about, you know, the different reserve currencies, you know, Portuguese currency was a reserve currency. Then it was Spain. Then it was the French currency. And then it was the UK. And then ultimately at the beginning of, at the end of World War One, it became the US dollar that took over as the reserve currency of the world. And, you know, a lot of my clients always ask me, Richard, what do you think about the US's status as the reserve currency in the world? And, and I always say, you know, unless there's sort of a war, a hot war, a revolution, or a, a viable alternative, um, you know, I don't think the reserve currency status is going to change for the US. But anyway, sorry, that's just the sort of why China and Iran and Russia and all these countries are meeting because they sort of want to pull themselves away. And we've seen how much financial damage the US can extract on its enemies if it wants to. Anyways, there you go. That, that was it. We were happy to move on. No, I just think that uh, it's a good point. I just, you know, as we can see, the <clears throat> this is showing up, I think, you know, in, in, in a lot of part of, you know, the financial stress is showing up in currency markets, right? And, and inflation and, and a lot of these central banks ultimately being trapped, right? And highly, highly indebted, indebted sovereigns and indebted societies, um, you know, they, they just, a lot of them aren't, unfortunately, having the ability to actually normalize policy, right? Um and uh, you know, Keith, to to your point, kudos to you. We had the um, EU's uh, European Commissioner for the Economy uh, out today saying the euro is showing strength, but the dollar is strengthening more. Uh, so I think we uh, briefly touched parity there uh, the other day. So uh, was that the first time in 20, 20 something years? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it was. Uh, you know, the whole parity thing—it's just—it's just a number, right? It's literally a line in the sand. So it—it doesn't. What's the difference between one hundred, you know, plus a bit or minus a little bit? It, it doesn't mean anything. However, like this morning, for example, um, you know, so euro currency in the spot market, like it's just dancing on the one, dancing on the one, and um, and you know, we, we've been watching this very closely for a few days, and. Uh, you know, I kept saying uh, to one of the guys, I said, hey, like, it's, as soon as this breaches one, like, it's it's down to 99 extremely quickly. And, you're, you know, we're joking, like, well, why should that happen? It, it just happens. And, that, and so sure enough, this morning, you know, it danced around and then boom, you know, it just dropped immediately. It's recovered a bit here right now. Uh, but the main problem now with Europe, I know last week, uh, you know, Richard did an exceptional job explaining to us, you know, why the farmers are, are protesting over in Europe. Um, in Italy, yesterday and today, so uh, Italian President Mario Draghi, who was former head of the ECB, prior to that, he was was he with the IMF as well at one point? I think and, and Goldman Sachs. <laughs> and Goldman Sachs, of course, you know, the the, the octopus. Just like whatever. our boy Mark Carney, future yeah. head of the Liberal Party. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, 
anyway, like he basically, you know, he came out and said, hey, say, listen, Italy needs a bailout. We, we need assistance here of, of some sort, um, which is kind of interesting because, you know, Rich, you sent out one of my, I think I commented to you. Rich sends out so many great charts all the time. I don't have time to always comment to him. But when is one that is even better than the rest of them, I'll say, Rich, this is a good one. And uh, I think it was yesterday, the day before, I think, Rich, you sent out the one showing the, the Italian current account yeah, balance. <laughs> and now, um, so you can explain what, what happened with that. But basically, right now, what's happening in the Eurozone, they can't, if they start raising rates and or reduce the amount of, of QE, it means rates will rise and that will affect banks and their regulatory capital and investment portfolios and stuff, but it's also going to affect what the Eurozone member states, such as Italy, what they have to pay when they borrow. And they're borrowing a ton of stuff all the time because Italy has the third largest debt load in the world behind the Japanese and the Americans. But anyway, uh, yesterday Draghi said, hey, uh, you know, we're going to need a bailout. And by the way, I'm resigning as president because even though I'm a yo-yo, all the rest of everyone here, they're all even bigger yo-yos and typical Italian politics um and i don't know it very much but they can never agree on anything so this will stumble along to yet another italian moment so that's why the euro uh currency specifically has been under a lot of pressure and um you know it is going to bounce around and everything but you know again we are you know i i wouldn't put steve's money in in the eurozone right now so uh God and bless. I, yeah, oh, I know. Can I, can, I, can I add something yeah, to that? Yeah, jump in. Jump so, in. so the thing, the funny thing about that Steve comment, the comment you, you made, Steve, about how the euro is actually strong against everybody else, that's just a de- demonstrable lie. And I will show this chart. There's something called a trade weighted index. So whenever, whenever we talk about it, currencies, it's always like Japanese versus the yen, the Canadian dollar versus the pound, whatever it is. It's usually a pair. So in their infinite wisdom, lots of statisticians and central bankers have come up with these things called trade-weighted currencies. And those trade-weighted currencies can have a broad basket. So literally every single person that you do trade with or a narrow basket, the most important trade partners. So if you're Canadian, you can probably figure out pretty quickly who's in our trade basket, the US, Mexico, maybe the Europe, a little bit of China, a little bit of Japan, anyway. And if you look at the trade-weighted Euro, um, and Europe, the Europe, make no mistake, despite all its misgivings, is a powerful exporter and trades with lots of different countries in the world. And its trade weighted euro is down like 20% too. So that's just totally bogus as far as a comment is concerned. It takes five minutes of internet Googling to figure that number out. I'll share the chart. But then on, so as far as Italy is concerned, and you know, I made the point that last week that that green policy is effectively becoming macro policy. And I think we can extend this even further and say green policy is now becoming central bank policy in sort of a delicious irony, because I remember Christine Lagarde did not want to lend any money to gas, um, gas companies and oil companies. So, you know, I guess you, you get what you sort of pay for sometimes. But the chart that I think, and, you know, there's a lot going wrong with Italy right now, but I think it's important to sort of contextualize it in the sense that up until the spike in natural gas, which, by the way, was not only foreseen, but they totally could have done something about it and ahead of time. You know, you had an Italy that was actually ha- had some really positive things going on for it. Industrial production, which for years was moribund, was actually going up. Credit, despite the fact that the government is extremely levered in Italy, households and non-financial corporations actually don't have that much debt. 
but and credit growth is normally a sign of a healthy economy. So that was going up. Employment was okay. Inflation, which in Italy has been always really low and been a problem, they actually had some decent inflation. And the chart that I'll share basically shows that the and then the final sorry, this final piece, excuse me, is the trade balance. And so for Italy, for a long time, they had a very negative current account balance, and then they had the euro area crisis in 2011, 12, 13, 14. It went on for a long time, and then finally you had a, a trade balance that was positive and contributing quote unquote cash into their economy, right? So you're getting some net exports, you're getting money coming in instead of money going out. So that's helping with a very indebted and unsustainable situation. But if you have a huge current account balance, you can, you can sort of muddle your way through. And that's why it's just such a nasty thing that's going on with the trade balance right now. So basically Italy's trade balance was positive. All of a sudden, natural gas prices spike. They have to import an incredible amount of natural gas from two places, Russia. And then forgive me, I'm lumping all of Africa together because that's the, the series that I'm going to show you. And that just basically has destroyed what is almost like eight or nine years of, I would say, goodwill. <laughs> we know how much Keith hates Italy, but there have been some positive things on the Italian front. And within almost six months, all of that got wiped away. And, and it's just a really kind of, and that's the, what the chart that Keith's referring to. We'll share it for our viewers. If you look on my Twitter, you guys can find it. But that, that's really the, the, the screwed up thing. But back to the, the ultimate point is that now this ECB is in a situation where they can't raise interest rates until natural gas prices fall, basically, because they're in a squeeze. They're getting squeezed internally, externally, and from the commodity market. I just think it's... I mean, it, it, I'm laughing because otherwise I'd be crying. It's just, it's a very kind of sad situation. Go ahead, Keith. Yeah. So, so I, I think uh, Keith does not hate Italy. <laughs> Come on, right? just teasing. I'm just uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I always like to say, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, investment focused and, you know, you always like or dislike a market. There will come a time soon when you all of a sudden you hear me say, hey, you, you know, what? we, we kind of like this market now. We'll go in because it's been priced correctly. Uh, but to be clear, and I know, Steve, um, you might go over there at some point, maybe, but if you do have a chance to go to Italy, my God, it's just, it, it's, everything is beautiful in Italy. The only thing that's ugly about Italy is the debt and you can't see debt. So uh, <laughs> let's be clear. And then if you go down to Naples, they make some great pizza pies down that way. And uh, I think everyone knows I like a good pizza. So it, I do like. The, yeah, Italy. I mean, hey, at least the currency's helping me out here. After yeah, it's at my brain an eight or ten year high now versus the euro. Oh, what guys, one Canadian thing. Dollar. Uh, yeah, for Canadian dollar, by the way. Uh, so we're trading seventy six. Call it seventy six cents here right now. If we get some kind of crisis event, some big lender goes under or experiences stress, something like that. Remember we had that with Home Capital Group a few years ago and it was sort of yawned off. But we, if we get something like that over the next few weeks, you know, you will see a six handle coming up extremely quickly in the Canadian dollar. So that's, people might think, oh no, we'll never go back, you know, below 70 again. But that's how tenuous things are right now here in, in Canada. So uh off you go. I think that's a good that's a good shocker. Everyone everyone's hanging up the podcast and going out to buy US dollars. 
which helps my book because I'm talking the book, of course, right? A couple other, um, no, yeah, sorry. I mean, just to kind of go around the horn as we're getting close to the to the end of the show here, but a couple other th- kind of interesting things. And we don't, I know we don't talk too much about the crypto space on this podcast, but I think that's been a really interesting space. Um, some interesting developments. I think as everybody know, they were kind of the, the first one to go during that liquidity crunch uh, several months ago. But, you know, some of the largest, players obviously blowing up here in in recent months so you had um three arrows capital which is that massive hedge fund those guys basically they went bankrupt and they've apparently disappeared so the authorities i believe in singapore are trying to find them and they're like they're gone uh so that's that's number one uh celsius which is one of the largest crypto sort of lenders or bank accounts or whatever you want to call them uh they kind of geared towards like retail deposits um they just filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy um and then you have BlockFi, which is another massive uh crypto lender as well um which is also basically received like basically like a bailout from from one of these large uh, institutions as well so yeah ton tons happening in that space i think that's kind of the initial so i always find interesting about the crypto space is like the unlike the rest of like finance is like there's no fed put in the crypto space right like the fed and the central banks are just happy to let it go and blow up and it kind of just like fixes itself um whereas you know if you had this kind of carnage i think in in the rest of the real financial world, they'd, they'd probably be into to step in as lender of last resort, but there is no lender of last resort in the crypto space. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if you have any comments on that, Rich, Keith, but. Well, that stopped falling. Bitcoin stopped falling. I think that that's a good sign, right? Do you think that Keith, do you think that, do you think that, because I'm looking at like, I know I was kind of asking some of my buddies today about this today. I was like, hmm, what do you think? Like, Obviously, I still think there's probably one more flush, but it's interesting to see that the the price moving in like Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, which are the two largest, they've really just basically been muddling along here over the last two months, despite kind of the rest of the markets yeah, kind of puking here. So it's like, is, is that like, I don't know, have they put in the bottom? Is there still one more flush when, when something else blows up in the system here? Or have they got rid of like all that excess leverage? Um, with some of the largest institutions in the crypto space already blowing up. I mean, from, from my, I think everyone knows from, from my perspective, I, I do not follow that market even remotely to say it, I'm close to it. I, I know, you know, the main, you know, the, the, the main players, what they're doing, things like that, but I can't add any insight, but I can offer insight is, is I think to what your question you're asking is, you know, from a, a global top-down multi-asset class perspective and if, if you ignore what's underneath any market like it doesn't matter if it's tech stocks or oil or you know bitcoin or you know we'll have it with the us dollar at, at some point soon as well markets will always move from you know nobody is even aware of it to everyone dislikes it to it goes to the euphoria and, and steps off um you know for us i, I have it in my sort of my buy list but i want to I do want to buy it at, at some point, but, um, and again, this is just based on experience of the markets, nothing in terms of, you know, Bitcoin specifically, but I, I'm suspecting it's, it could have another flush coming up. You know, it, it needs one more flush so that nobody's, nobody's even talking about it anymore. And, uh, so again, that's my thought. Everyone would take that for what it is. Again, I, I'm not, I know the FX markets extremely well and I know everything 
very well. I'm that smart. <laughs> how are you looking but, at how are you guys? But not at that com- space. <laughs> how are you? How are you guys looking at uh, you know commodities right now? Because I think specifically, I think this is probably a function of like risk risk off. You know, the U.S. dollar obviously you know screaming higher. But you know, if we look at uh, commodity markets, at least from a pricing perspective, um, from the peak, lumber off fifty eight percent, nickel down fifty four, aluminum off thirty seven percent, natural gas down thirty one percent, steel down 28 wheat down 28 percent uh lead down 23 copper down 22 percent soybeans 18 percent corn 16 cocoa oil off 13 percent um is this just an opinion of of risk off um was, were commodities completely overdone i think structurally it seems to me that we're going to be in a commodity bull market from a longer term perspective but First of all, I didn't, I didn't know there were that many commodities. So that's there you cool. go. Looney yeah. hour. You learn Looney something hour. new every show. <laughs> we do. I know it's, it's, that's what's so fun about it. Um, so our view, markets are transitioning now away from this, you know, hyperinflation, strong inflationary environment, focus on supplies to, you know, we're going to recession. I, I think recession story is, it's starting to be reflected in markets. What that means we'll get softness in the commodity space. Uh, and then for us, we would see that as an opportunity. So I, I don't think, you know, oil production is, is has the opportunity to, to increase dramatically. It's going to take a long time to do that. Uh, same with some of these other commodities as well. So the short answer is we're in a soft path. It's in a gully because of the uh, recession that's coming it's a gully. up. It's just a gully. It's just a gully. A lot of People motivated just, sellers these days. Yeah. People just want homes. That's all they want. <laughs> uh, but then after that, though, um, you know, we should start to see re- returning the trend again. Yeah. So I, I'd agree with that. Um, so I'm not going to reiterate. I mean, you got my, my views on the supply constraints for both um, raw materials and industrial metals and stuff. And oil have been well documented on this program, so I'll stay. I'll stay out of that. One thing I do. One thing I have been looking at is gold. I know we don't really talk about gold here too much. Um, I think gold is becoming less and less important financially as more and more people have an increasing part of their wealth in their houses. That's maybe a conversation for a different day. But um, gold does tend to track real interest rates pretty well, and real interest rates continue to rise higher and higher. And so something, something that I, you know, sort of t- told my clients is to just sort of steer clear from gold until you get sort of retrenching in those real interest rates. Happy to share that chart on, on that. Um, you know, and, and so that's something I'm, I'm really looking at. Um, as far as the sort of the, the things like lumber, I mean, there's a lot of wood out there. So lumber never really had a supply constraint. So, I mean, I can't speak to lumber. But another thing that we also look at is what commodities can tell us about um, sort of the global, um, the global economic picture, um, sort of just reiterating what Keith said and something that I would suggest all of our listeners to look up is copper, otherwise known as Dr. Copper and Dr. Copper continues to fall. Not all commodities are sort of created equal with respect to the, their indication on global economic activity. Copper is a really, really has been historically a really useful kind of indicator on where sentiment is going. And it's and right now it's not good. There you have it. There you have it. Oh, there's like a couple of one things. I just wanted to say a a totally off topic. I know we're wrapping up, but I just want to sneak this in. Uh, Do you guys see the James Webb telescope pictures? 
I know this has not nothing to do with the topic at hand, but I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. I'm a super, I'm a big space geek. And, and if you haven't looked at that, you have to, boys. I don't know what awesome. you're talking about. So it's a space, it's a telescope, the space, it's an infrared telescope that they put at the Grand Point 2, which is a place in, in, in Earth's orbit that's like, you know, can you can basically hold the satellite from moving around, basically. And they threw up this $10 billion infrared telescope that can take pictures of the Big Bang. I think it's amazing. I had to share it on the Looney Hour. You guys are glazing over. To the moon, baby. <laughs> and Rich's you guys are pick not up, as impressed as I am. Rich's <laughs> pickup lines are something else. To the moon. It's amazing. <laughs> All right. On that note, we will uh, we'll call it a day. Um, Rich, I think you still owe us another Twinkie, buddy. Oh, okay. I'll do it. Don't think we wouldn't. Don't think we <laughs> I have wouldn't. nothing to wash yeah. it down with. I have nothing to wash it down with. This one is a mint chocolate Twinkie. That sounds Not disgusting. Only that, that'll teach me to, to make bets about the Central Bank of Canada, which has refound its testicular fortitude after many, many moons in the wilderness. <laughs> There you go. Cheers, everybody. By the, by the way, I think if anyone has a, a line to Twinkie, I think we should get a, a sponsorship here. We're, we've been pumping these guys' bags oh for a God, while. This is so disgusting. Who? Uh, well, we're not going to get a sponsor if we say it's disgusting. That's oh right. This right. is right. I love Twinkies. <laughs> I personally find it to be a very nice afternoon pick me up. After afternoon uh, delight at the at the at the ice cap household. Yeah, I don't know. I can't. Twinkies are so nutritious and delicious. <laughs> if you want to be a good part of a healthy, like balanced Keith, diet, you eat four Twinkies a day. <laughs> <laughs> and look at me. <laughs> just hit, he just hit his max PR on his bench press. So, oh, um, anyway. So, guys, this was episode 40. We have the big, you know, half a hundred coming up soon. Well, we'll probably do um, we're working towards a, like a live Q&A webinar, not webinar, but like a live Q&A, maybe like a YouTube stream where people can kind of come on ask questions build the community out here so uh we'll, we'll kind of keep you guys posted on that but as always we appreciate the ongoing support all we ask that you share this with one friend or family member pick up your box of twinkies support your local twinkie dealership and we'll see you next week all right see you boy